Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Roll for Enterprise, a double-digit episode spectacular, because yes, this is our episode number 10. As usual, I'm joined by Zach and Mike, but also this week, we're joined by my very good friend and former manager, Lilac Schoenbeck. Lilac, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Um, yeah, my name is Lilac Schoenbeck. Uh, I work at Rocket Software, leading go-to-market strategy for our power systems business unit. And I have been in this legacy data center, cloud, basically anything that uh, feels hardware adjacent, but isn't hardware space for 20 years now. Time flies when you're having fun, eh? Absolutely. But, <laughs> <laughs> but before getting into legacy tech, we wanted to just talk briefly about uh, some news. And of course, there hasn't been any because it's the summertime, it's the silly season. But I published a blog post that uh, I thought was an interesting topic for us all to discuss briefly about remote events and how they really don't work at all, at least for my purposes. So let me lay my cards on the table and then we can go around. The reason I don't like virtual events is because they miss most of what I enjoy about events, uh, the so-called hallway track, the serendipitous running into people and networking and just talking to people. I even like standing in the booth. My field marketing people are rubbing their hands and scheduling me for the next 17 years. And I miss that. So the remote events... You can throw up a video stream of the keynotes pretty easily. You can record the sessions pretty easily. But going beyond that, nobody seems to have really found a good format for that. And that then leads into all sorts of questions about what do the marketing metrics mean? What does attendance at a remote event signify? So maybe Lilac, since you're the guest, do you want to lead off? I know you have a rather different perspective <laughs> from me on in-person events. Well, I think they can certainly be challenging. Um, I think one of the, they're exhausting, right? Like, and, and somebody who spent years on the marketing side of that, I I do recognize the in, the investment, the sheer amount of money um, it, it takes to put these things on and whether that's the right use of anybody's resources. But I'm not going to negate the joy of standing in a booth. And in fact, that was always my favorite place to test messages, to talk to customers, to understand use cases. If you can get in a, a hundred conversations over the course of a week with somebody who effectively is your target buyer, you learn so much more about what matters to them and what you should be building and what storyline to tell in order to communicate the value of your product. So from that perspective, I absolutely agree with you. I do get tired of the food. <laughs> and the coffee. Let's not forget the coffee. I never get tired of the coffee, Dominic. <laughs> you guys love boots, and I hate walking by boots. So there's there's something wrong there. Yeah, I, I just I, I just so dislike um, walking by the booths. I think for me, I mean, being on the other side, it's more the interaction with peers that I that I miss, right? With people going through, let's say, the same struggles and and finding relatable cases, finding out what they're doing. It, it's not always uh, talking to the vendors that I value, but it's more that informal. Uh, communication with people who do what I do, right? So uh, I, I think it's a little different when we take a look at both perspectives, but you're right. I mean, it really does uh, stink when they move online. Uh, I don't know that, like, I, I don't know, like going to a big event, you feel like there's there's energy, you get passionate about it. It's not the same online. It just, it loses that that thrill, that excitement. That That's where I, I, I think uh, I struggle with some of these uh, these online events that have been have been happening and they're happening quite frequently now because they they don't want to keep people um what, what i'm seeing is they don't want to keep people eight hours so there's like a lot of like two hour sessions and you know you, you, you jump on a like a zoom call and it's, it's just awkward uh, i don't know how else to put it 
Yeah, it is. And then you have these, you know, increased distractions. I think that's a problem. Um, then also the one-way interaction. I think you touched on it, Dominic, you as well, Mike. It's You miss out on a lot of things with these, uh, with these remote events. And we personally have not found a lot of success in them yet. Uh, I'm hoping that that'll change soon or somebody will come up with something that's game-changing. But uh, so far, I'm not impressed. Where, where's it moving? I mean, does anybody, I mean, you know, it's not happening, but those interactions are happening. I mean, I, I'm reaching out to my network when I have questions. I mean, is, is anybody seeing it different from at least your side on the, on the vendor side of it? I think Reddit uh, has been, has been picking up. I'm not sure, Dominic, what you might be seeing or Lilac, if what you're seeing on your side, but uh, I think some of those forums seem to be picking up in general. Um, but outside of that, yeah, I, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, we're trying all sorts of new formats. Uh, so I've been doing some podcast things. I've been blogging perhaps more than normal. And I've also been doing this thing called a workathon, which was a new one on me. Uh, it's basically a hackathon, but where the end product is a piece of prose produced by the group rather than a piece of code. And so that's interesting. The product of that should be coming out soon, and then everyone can judge whether it was any good. But it's been a fun process to have those uh, conversations. Yeah, we're trying sort of a, a range of options as well, looking um at community and forum in our world um, and participating in other people's as well. Um, and then I think uh, trying to bolster conversations through things like RPACs and things like that. Um, sorry, like uh, advisory councils and things like that. Yeah, definitely. And that's a way to have slightly more productive conversations as a vendor with someone like Mike than trying to snare them into the booth with your tripwire. God, you know, I got, I got to admit this, but I'm going to hate to admit this, but it's actually true. I, I do spend a little extra time reading the spam that I get in my inbox uh, during these times just to see what's coming in. Typically, you'll hear about it or I'll just delete it, but I am actually spending a little more time reading either newsletters or marketing emails that come to me. And I, you know, I, I can't tell you why, but it, it, it's happening at least in my inbox that I'm, I'm spending a little more time on them. Well, hey, Mike, just don't send a check to the prince, whatever you do. <laughs> in Nigeria. Yeah. I do wonder whether that's simply that the events teams are focusing their energy on that rather than on the booth design and things like that. Yeah, maybe they've gotten better and I haven't I haven't really noticed, but it is um yeah, some of them uh really do work better, I I guess. Okay. So some thoughts for the future. I mean, as I said in my blog post, my hope is that we do get to go back to in-person events, not least because that means that we have the whole COVID thing under control, but that we do keep some of these learnings that we let remote participants and time-shifted participants, either through time zones or just in the future, have a better experience of these events, as well as that strong in-person experience that at least for me is still irreplaceable. So with that said, let's move on to the main topic and the reason that uh, I wanted to invite Lilac to the conversation, which is to talk about legacy tech. And now when we were having our preliminary chats, there was this quote that uh, came to mind, may your products live long enough to become legacy, uh, which I've been completely unable to source. But if any listener has an idea, by all means, write in and let me know and I'll update things. But I do like that, the idea that legacy in tech is this dirty word because we all like the newest, shiniest thing. But businesses tend to run on things that are old and crafty because they're reliable and boring. Boring is good. It doesn't do something unpredictable that trips up uh, your business. So that's kind of my take on legacy, also informed by some of my experiences. At Lilac, is that a fair assessment uh, or is legacy tech something more or different than that? 
I think it's fair. I think the the words that we use around this are unfortunately often sort of painted as stodgy or behind the times, right? And and in fact, that doesn't really speak to the etymology of the word legacy at all, right? Usually people want a legacy. Um, and so it's fascinating how it's turned in our industry. We're just so very focused on the shiny objects. And I actually, a long time ago, I can't even remember when, wrote a blog post about how this is effectively sort of shaming IT people for not being on the very latest technology across all of their environment as quickly as possible, as though there's some sort of shame or, or downside to that, which I think is, is kind of crazy. Um, if we did this in any other domain of our lives, I think we would consider it preposterous, right? Like we, we think of people that only wear the latest fashions from the last three months as being a little bit superficial, right? Like, why would you go that far? Why, you know, those jeans from last year are still fine. Um, and like, and somehow we, we feel the need to, to dismiss these old systems and particularly because they are beyond just fine, right? They're actually incredibly solid. I just really don't like the way that we speak of anything that is more than six months old in our industry. Don't you find companies that carry a lot of legacy are missing kind of the innovation or, or carrying themselves forward in terms like they're struggling to keep legacy up or legacy running, but then they're missing like innovation and, and being ready for the times and competitors are overtaking them or you or do you see it a little a little differently in that aspect? I actually think that those are two fully separate things, right? You can have underlying legacy systems and legacy applications that have been there and work and run your business and are, frankly, incredibly optimized for your business because 20 years on, right, that ERP is tuned to the way things are in your company, right? And I think that can be a benefit. But then I do think you're right that you have to continue to innovate. But that doesn't preclude continuing to work with those platforms. There's a lot of excellent ways to reorganize the processes, the user experiences, the integrations of these systems, the their, even their location now. There's power in the cloud at Google, at IBM, and at many other um, managed service providers. So I think that we can decouple the platform and the age of the platform from the level of innovation that companies are experiencing. So Absolutely, you have to innovate, right? That is first and foremost, and IT can never be a barrier to the innovation of a business. That is anybody in IT will tell you is the is the end, right? That is like the foundation of the Phoenix Project, which I am now rereading in all of its glory. Um, and, you know, but that doesn't, I don't think it's, I think it's completely decoupled. I think that's fair. And that's why we talk about uh, systems like pace layering, so that you have your systems of records that are established, that are boring, that don't change too much because they map to the parts of your business that don't change too much. You need to send out invoices at the end of every month. And then you have systems of differentiation and systems of innovation, which have faster and faster rates of change and therefore might map to different technologies. And so the trick is knowing at what point a system graduates from being, okay, this is a system of innovation, it's in that mode of move fast and break things. And then that graduates to becoming a system of records, and that needs to perhaps be treated differently without falling into the trap that everyone was shouting at Gartner about a few years ago, where you end up having two teams, the boring team that nobody wants to be on, and the cool, exciting team that everyone wants to be on, and that drives also all the recruitment, which is another factor. Uh, recruitment is often driven by, once again, in the tech industry with its love for novelty, you get to work on the latest, coolest tech. I mean, that's absolutely true. I, I think there's though a, a financial aspect to this, right? Because I, I think from, from, from the side of companies operating legacy, there's a lot of 
a, a lot of like cash tied up and, and finances tied up into maintaining that legacy, maintaining the resources to, to maintain that. And I think you have to be cash rich then to start like the other side where, okay, now we're going to focus on innovation here because I don't know necessarily that you're going to unlock it in the same way with the same with the same people, right? And 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 typically, like when I refer to legacy, I'm talking about systems that have been in place 20, 30 years and, and companies struggle to to modernize around it, right? But I, I think you refer to it a little differently, Lilac, right? Um, you know, I'm in the power space. So IBMI, which is often a 20 to 30 year technology, right? I mean, it's been around for a while and, and the other half of Rocket Software focuses on mainframe and, and, and multi-value databases, which are all technologies that um, have more than graduated from uh, college and moved into the grad school years, right? Um, so I, I say everybody's doing mainframe in a different way now if you start to look at VMware and everybody else. So let's let's not knock mainframe. I got a my heart's a little into mainframe. Yeah. So oh, all right. oh okay. Oh, all right. <laughs> so we have we have, there's, there's legacy and there's legacy in your world. Okay, fantastic. Um, I love a mainframe too, right? I mean I I think all these systems are spectacular in the things that they can achieve, but you just want the right tool for the right job. I think the challenge with with what you said, I'm gonna push back a little bit because you knew I would because that's who I am. But I think the challenge is it's not an either or. The act of trying to rip out a core system, a core business system that might be running on a more legacy platform and replace it with something new is an incredibly costly and risky activity, right? And so yeah, you may say, well, I wish that I could actually spend all my money on this newfangled AWS super cool cloud stuff, right? Let's make it all containers. Um, and and that's fun, except you still have this core system that you have to maintain and manage. And so then the question is, how do you optimize the investment in the core business use cases around that in a way that is best for the company, right? And so to me, I would say, do what it takes to make that system, to bring it up to speed, to bring it up to par, and then spend the excess on innovation in these newfangled domains, if that's what you must do. But I think it would cost you a hell of a lot more to try to pull that stuff out and do it effectively. Yeah, I think that's probably the safest approach, but that would apply in normal times. Have you seen any changes to that during COVID lockdowns and the the impacts that's been happening? We talked about this on the last episode a little bit, and I've been talking to various other people about this. What we tend to see across the industry a lot is that many people have accelerated that transition to, to new things simply because they suit themselves better to this approach where everyone sat in their own home office in front of their screens and they can't get into the main office and get into a conference room around a whiteboard and do those bigger projects that require more coordination that tend to map more to legacy tech, perhaps? We haven't seen that. No, we just haven't seen it. I, I think I think you get the anecdotes that you look for, right, in this world. So I won't pretend like like we don't have a selection bias. Everyone does. But I will say that, you know, on the flip side, the legacy systems that are incredibly resilient, um, often we're hearing reports that, oh, that thing just kept running and it was a beast and I didn't have to deal with it even in these dark times, right? Oh, yeah, all those anecdotes about the servers that just get lost behind drywall or whatever. That's yep, right. Yep. That's right. Those are all like right. Those are all legacy systems, one hundred percent, right? But th- but that sort of idea, right, that these thing is so resilient and so robust by m- a number of metrics, they are. I think you're right in saying that we saw a sort of reticence to pick up a new major overhaul project during COVID. That's 
understandable. But I think we saw more interest in investing in these systems because they prove their robustness. That's what we're experiencing. I think this is interesting. I think of old Novell, uh, anybody remembers that, three servers that would, you know, were around forever. They were actually found behind these old drywalls that you're referring to, Dominic. There's stories of that. But that is that, that real? <laughs> I've always been curious if that was real because I've heard 30,000 versions of that story and I, I just want one photo. Just one. <laughs> I've seen uh, servers in basements um, that are partially uh, in water that have been running for years and no one no one realized it. So I, I think the stories are quite true, yeah. Amazing. That makes it even better. So these, you know, these servers were reliable. They'd still be here today, but at some point they do limit you. So I'm just curious, for example... Compatibility issues. I mean, things like this, or are you going to miss out on on being able to leverage, you know, some of these new features? Um, I, I don't know. Unlocking the data, right? Or unlocking the value. Exactly. Oh God, yeah. I mean, again, I don't think I'm suggesting that you should really drywall these servers in a corner and uh, you know put their code on ice and never touch them again, right? <laughs> and just sort of burn sage and pray over them and hope that they don't change, right? That that's not a strategy. <laughs> It's not the way it works. I think actually that in order to make any of this work, you have to build the interrelationships between the legacy system and distributed or x86 or cloud-based environments. You absolutely must, right? Because otherwise you've got data and business logic and capability locked up behind proverbial drywall. That's no way to build the business or innovate on the business or support the business processes or anything, right? But that would be a model that says, I'm going to take absolutely the crown jewels, hide them in the you know, biggest vault in the, in the in the darkest dungeon, and and you will never get to them. That's no way to live. The right approach, I think, and the one that we would advocate for is to say, how do we open up that system so that it continues to exist, but now is integrated across whatever other more novel technologies, but also the ones that, as Dominic said, you know, are going to be flipping a little bit more frequently. And so, can we build a bunch of APIs at? Both the UI layer, which is often where people think of it as like, can we just sort of frost the whole thing with a pretty new UI, but then a little deeper at the business logic layer or down at the database layer so that we can interact with all the different components of this core system across the entire IT environment. And I actually think that that speaks a little bit to the challenge of the bifurcating of the of the employee population as well that Dom brought up earlier, right? Because you don't want to be in a situation where you've got the cool kids with their, you know, artisanal beard oil in their AWS accounts and the, you know, old stodgy folks with their swing line staplers and they don't speak, right? <laughs> in increasingly, what you want is joint development processes, joint DevOps processes, joint build processes that makes this all come together. I, I would guess you see, uh, you, you see two companies, right? You see the ones who are looking to integrate legacy and then the ones who are just, um, yeah, hiding it behind the doors, right? I, I guess there are two types of companies because I don't think everybody is, is looking to integrate it as deeply as, uh, as you suggest, right? That, that's, that, that's at least what I would assume. Sure. There's a mix, right? But it's possible. And I think the idea that it is impossible or undesirable would be wrong, right? I think it's, it's possible. It's not hard. Um, and I think it, it opens up a lot of doors that I think people feel are truly closed. And that's not true. Yeah, I think if we can learn as organizations, if we can learn from experience from legacy, then we get to flip that. And legacy is no longer a dirty word. It becomes the more positive definition that 
<laughs> the wider culture would recognize. And I think that would be better for everyone. You, you know, when we talk legacy, we hear a lot of like IBM. I, what, what about legacy acceleration? I mean, do we, is there, I mean, I, I, I believe more, I mean, the, the industry moves so fast that more items are becoming considered legacy. Is is there, I mean, how do you guys see it in terms of what's becoming legacy, what people don't want to touch? I mean, you know, I refer to Dell as the place where all legacy goes. If you look at hardware and what's happening with the cloud, but I mean, how, how do you how do you guys see um, kind of the evolution of legacy? Because it's it's going to be growing, right? Especially with all the yeah everything we have today in terms of solutions, infrastructure, and so on. Yeah, Corey Quinn in his latest newsletter had a very funny riff on VMware as a legacy company. And it's funny maybe because I've been around the IT industry long enough so I can remember when VMware was the coolest, newest thing. Uh, and maybe someone more recently joining the industry I would not have that reaction. But everyone's after those, as vendors, right? Everyone's after those big legacy replacement projects for a couple of reasons. One is for the prestige of being able to say that you replaced something that was the, the legacy platform because of that requirement that it be absolutely reliable and therefore your product gets some of that shine, some of that veneer that, oh my goodness, it must be pretty reliable if they were able to, to replace the extremely reliable thing that they had before. And on the other hand, because of how much value is locked up in those, and so the denominator in the ROI calculation is very, very large and that helps justify lots of other things. But in actual reality, those are fairly rare. Those are the white whales that the salespeople are going after and they definitely spend a lot of time chasing them. But much more often what I see in the field is coexistence, where there is exactly that pace layering or you know, other types of coexistence, but uh, maybe we're wrapping the reliable, solid, battle-proven uh, legacy tech in something else in the API bundles and whatnot that let it talk to the AWS artisanal beard oil, etc., uh, <laughs> etc. Et uh, technologies. Speaking of trade shows, do you remember reInvent when it first started? It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is not the same event. <laughs> I think of uh, you know, let's say I had a vehicle that was 25 years old. It works. Yes, it's optimized. It gets me from point A to point B. But is it missing, I don't know, safety features? Is it, you know, missing some other features perhaps that would make that commute a little bit easier, a little bit safer, or a little bit quicker? Uh, I, that's just in my mind. I think everyone is right. I mean, it, it's great. You want to select something that has that staying power that you can maybe optimize operationally that, you know, um, makes sense, you know, but I, I think for me, there's some other factors and, and perhaps the staying power really has a lot to do with that interoperability or perhaps the, and I think that's what we're saying, right? Not all these applications will have the staying power because they don't have those things. Maybe, you know, interoperability, we I keep talking about that, or maybe it's not operationally optimized for your environment, things like that. So perhaps that's the thing here that we're discussing right is is what what it takes to to get to that point well zach if i may like former recovering marketer to marketer like the analogy matters right like and i think that the car analogy is one that people pull out a lot um and i get it everybody loves a vehicle except except me dominic knows i can't tell a vehicle from a pop tart but but then i wonder if we frame it less as a vehicle and more as the plumbing in your house right nobody has looked for innovation in their house plumbing in low these many years right? Like, we're just like, there's no lead pipes, I'm done, right? And in fact, we sort of just replace the stuff that breaks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And we sort of mock the sort of heat sensitive faucet systems, right? Because they're just seems so incredibly unnecessary. And, um, and, and so I think it's interesting.
interesting. The analogies that we use to talk about this technology drives the perception that we have of it. And I do think some technologies maybe didn't win and didn't achieve this legacy status that Dominic opened this whole discussion with. And others actually have lasted the test of time and might be more plumbing than 1975 Datsun. You know, I'm I'm not a fan of the car analogy. I just used it. But by the way, plumbing, I have plumbing issues in my house because I have older pipes. So I don't necessarily agree with that. I have (laughs) issues there. Um, so, and that, and that's, and that's, that's the, that's the truth, right? That really is the truth. So, uh, and by the way, if you want to talk about houses, you know, after 10, 15 years, they too have issues. doesn't matter where you live or what kind of house you have. You, you start to look for things, right? The roof. And very excuse you. My previous house, so not this current house, this one is new by current standards. It's post-war. Uh, my previous house was older than your country <laughs> and, and it still works fine. I kept the rain off. <laughs> yeah. Well. I have a house that's 98 years old, and I can tell you that things things need to be replaced. Yeah. But, you know, so, but, th- but, but there you go, Dominic, right? I mean, there's there's differences. This is what we're talking about. What works for one person doesn't work for the next. Yeah. So I think there's another good use case. So The key is also the usability. That's uh, one of the things that I hated about business travel that I don't miss is the mystery plumbing in the hotel room where you can never tell, you know, how do I turn this on? How do I turn it off? What temperature is it going to be when I step into the shower? And the light switches. They're always trying to innovate around those things. That all I want is a little toggle that I can flick on and I can flick off. And it's got to be beside the bed for the bed light. And it's got to be beside the door for the room light. Enough. I don't need innovation. It needs to be reliable and boring and work when I flick the toggle. I feel like you're still remembering Vegas now, Don. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> so, you know, the, the the other problem around around legacy is, you know, some of this hardware that's there, it's, it's not growing, right? So... Um, whatever company is building it is is likely in decline, not all the time. Okay, and we could we could argue about you know because we we always think of IBM when we think legacy, but you know they they there's no organic growth in it. Um, there's no new customers uh, buying it. Uh, there's no expansion of current companies that are using it, kind of growing that footprint. So I, I think where it gets scary is that that could stop at any time, right? It's the same fear you have with let's say going to a startup that might. Be acquired one way or um, or somebody might acquire them and shut them down and then you've built a business on that I think that's also kind of a, a, a worry that uh, that I see around legacy where maybe we don't always think about it right because yes you'll always need the water and the plumbing but and you guys are the, are the marketer so, so you understand kind of the analogies and telling the story but I, I think there there is a risk because it is different it, it is it is a bit a bit different in, in that respect so you're clinging on but there could be a point you know in this really robust solution that you know you could be stuck and I, I guess that's where this whole resale business comes in for for some vendors but it could be it, it could be you know a, a risk for some some businesses out there right yeah I want to leave you with a good quote here John Chambers fifty uh, percent of fortune 500 will not exist in 10 years yeah companies don't don't exist for forever I think uh, you know when you hear Amazon Amazon's looking to build a, a forever company right but yeah and, and I guess that's the decline that we see in IBM and so on and so forth right how many times can you reinvent yourself and and so on so you know I, I think goes to my point it's it's you know it's going to die eventually and you got to be ready for that too i mean i think 
eventually is really the key here, right? I mean, the rumors of its death have, have long been exaggerated, right? And, and that's true for mainframe as well. Yeah, I'm actually looking at an IDC slide right now as database market because that's the market I play in. And IBM's in there and it's got a plus figure yeah. besides its market share. Its wow. market share is actually growing. Power systems continue to have brisk sales, certainly to existing accounts, right? But those existing accounts numbers in the tens of thousands of companies around the world um, so I think that all of these legacy technologies suffer from um, not being cool and therefore not getting buzz and therefore this perception of a greater decline than exists in the market, right? The decline is something to the order of 1% and is perceived to be something on the order of 40% just because it, you're going to read a thousand more articles on containerization and Kubernetes than you are about, um, you know, the greater joy of implementing a new IBMI. Right. And that's just it is what it is. I'd love to write those articles. I'm, I'm, I'm available for all of those interviews. Um, but I feel like I feel like it's a balance. I guess to me, the thing that really I don't like the feeling that people that work on and support and enhance and innovate upon these platforms are somehow legacy or stodgy or not current. What is being done in these environments is actually quite incredible and very integrated and often cloud-based and often like all of these things that we tend to associate with positive forward motion. I mean, so that to me is something that I guess I feel pretty passionately about. There's a lot of value there and I would hate for it to be dismissed under the legacy moniker. Yeah, that point about integration is key as well, because we had that discussion with IDC trying to understand their uh, market share figures a little bit more. And part of that IBM database market specifically, once again, we're talking here, is driven by its integration. DB2 underpins a whole lot of products. But why does it underpin the products? Oh, I'm sure there is some uh, motivated selection going on there, but also it's because it just works and it does what it needs to do. And the product is not about the database. It just needs a database that works. So why not? And that is wrapping back to the beginning. That's a product that's lived long enough to become legacy. It's proved its value. No company starts up and, and builds into legacy, right? But you, you could be stuck with it for a while. And I think uh, it's also important to consider like software becomes legacy too, right? I, I think uh, we always refer to, to hardware, but there is uh, software. And with what's happened with software from you know, 10, 20 years ago to today, I, I think it's, it's, it's more and more becoming very, uh, very, very niche. And I think niche is, is also um, a kind of accelerating more legacy into, in, into the IT environment. Technologies can live longer if they really fit a particular niche, whether that's technical Absolutely. or market fit. or Especially if it gives you differentiation from your competitors and, and so on and so forth, right? You can do something much better than they can, then yeah, then it's hard to knock that out or to, to replace that at any point in time. That's right. And most of these have been customized so tightly to try to optimize for that, right? So then you go for an, an off-the-shelf replacement and it can often be very different from the way that you're used to running your business. And that can feel like you're losing some competitive advantage or at least some operational advantage. And if you've been around 20, 30 years, you're doing something right. So let's just go back to the beginning. You might be fortunate enough then to be considered legacy. So there's some benefits there. I'm not saying that there aren't. And VMware is now 20 plus years and it's it's still here and they're trying to reinvent. I do think though, for these companies after 20, 30 years, especially in IT and technology, it's uh, the innovation is it, it's got a different look and feel and it gets becomes more difficult. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, John Chambers, you know, the company he used to run Cisco, again, a good example of a company trying to keep 
you know, innervate, but it becomes just heavier and bolt on like feels and, and things like that. But again, if you've been lucky to, to fortunate enough to be around for 20, 30 years, you've done something right. Businesses are leveraging your product and they found some success and some operational uh, benefits as well, I would assume. Yeah, I think that's uh, as good a summation as any. If a business finds value in what you do, you'll potentially live for quite a long time, as long as indeed they do find that value. So we're just about at time. Any closing thoughts? Lilac first. Gosh. Um, I don't know. It's so, it was a pretty good summation. And I, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is, this has absolutely been a pleasure. I think there, I, I think this conversation for me is, is really, um, shown both sides or multiple sides of the story. Um, and I think most companies out there are actually grappling with multiple sides of this story. And so I think it's a worthy discussion to continue to have in the industry and in the market. And I'm glad that, that we can have it here. Definitely. Mike. Yeah, I don't think um, legacy is going anywhere. I yeah, aren't, aren't you three years into a six-month legacy offload? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, three years, three years in. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, it's it's uh, it's not easy, especially when you know these legacy products are built into key business processes, right? So it's not easy to unwind them or or, or take them out without harming the business and. You know, harming the business is the last thing uh, you want to do. And it's not only, you know, the people managing and implementing them, but the people using them, right? The, the user base. I think that's also hard because you're talking about major transformation around a lot of these. So I, I think they're here to stay. And I, I think, yeah, some some companies, it's a differentiator for them and others are, are, are looking for newfangled things. And it'll continue to be that way, right? Um, two sides of the coin on on every one of these. I think the fact that they have staying power is frustrated the cloud providers, let's be honest. Uh, and as a matter of fact, a lot of these companies are, are still running on them, to your point, Mike. And so uh, the cloud providers are now trying to, to come on-prem to get close to this data, to get closer to these applications. And I, I don't even know if I like the term legacy. Again, if they've been here 20, 30 years, it says something positive. And it says something if the cloud providers who keep coming up with these these new terms and new acronyms. It's funny because 15 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, we get frustrated. You used to have to have a, a thick book if you wanted to see all the acronyms. And here comes AWS, for example, with 1,800 plus more, you know, more code names. But um, I think it says a lot. I mean, the cloud providers for all their innovation are still trying to replace these legacy apps and they can't. So that says a lot. And you shouldn't look the other way if your business is running on them. Perhaps you can, should continue to optimize it and perhaps you should continue to operationalize it in a way that it makes you more efficient. So perhaps it's the best of both worlds. Okay, I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much, Lilac, for joining us. An absolute pleasure as ever. Likewise. Thank you, thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks, thank everybody. You. Bye.